once again, thank you so much, each of you, for being here on this holiday weekend in which certainly I appreciate your presence and prayerfully we can share in the word. Congratulations to the Baysmore, 30 years, God be praised, and may you experience 30 more. Be a wonderful thing. Amen. Vivian's good to see you. I saw you try to creep in here, but I caught you. Good to see you. Are you here visiting? You are? Good. How are you? You still in Florida? You enjoying the sunny state? All right. I just want to make sure you weren't ready to come back here. Nope. Just asking. Amen. Would you join me this morning in the Song of Solomon, chapter 8? As we come to this final message in this series, the Song of Solomon chapter 8, and I only want to read verse 6 and 7. Song of Solomon chapter 8, verse 6 and 7. Word of the Lord. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, its jealousy as enduring as the grave. Love flashes like fire the brightest kind of flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can rivers drown it. If a man tried to buy love with all his wealth, his offer would be utterly scorned. Amen. You may be seated. I sort of left us on last Sunday with an anticipation of wrestling with the question that the poem, these eight different stanzas, yet their presentation houses almost a single question when one concludes reading it. What is it about the Shulamite woman that causes Solomon to extend himself throughout this brief but yet expressive kind of narrative to a place of celebration of who this woman is. What is it about her that has captivated his heart? Why does he defend her perspective about who she is as the woman of his heart? And the answer is quite simple. It's simply because he finds in her the fruit of his own life by way of defining who he is through her. He finds in her the whole in his wholeness. He discovers in her, if it's true, where scholars have contended that this may be once again a point 
of midlife crisis in Solomon's life. I'm not sure how accurate that is. And if it is likewise, arguably, myth that there's no way that one person can marry 700 different women. If that is true, then to me that even adds a bit more clarity and a bit more, how should we say, authenticity to the love that has captured Solomon's life in this one single human being. She has become the stabilizer in his rocky journey. She completes who he is and in these two simple verses, six and seven, she provides for us an almost complete thesis statement, although not at the beginning of the narrative, and yet her statement is clear unto us. She may likewise lift up for us the question, what is the message that Solomon is trying to convey in the poem to the reader. And the message is simple. Love and its characteristics. Love because it doesn't take a lot to recognize genuine love. You, you can, when you see it, you know it. But it takes a lot to realize genuine love. It doesn't take much to point it out because you can see it depicted, particularly when it's genuine between two persons, but the real challenge comes to live out that kind of expression because it requires a great deal of work. What Solomon leaves us is an explanation as to why love is so critical in our marital in our relational, in our friendships. No matter what those relations are, there's a level of love that's critical, but when we talk about holy matrimony, it's a level of love that cannot be matched. He clearly makes clear for us, but particularly as we come to this eighth chapter, that love is often unexplainable. It's unexplainable because when it is taking place, it's so good that words just cannot really describe what is genuinely happening. It's not just unexplainable, but love often is unmeasurable. It's difficult to find a means of a ruler to rule and to measure exactly what love is because it's unmeasurable. It goes so far. It's not just unexplainable and unmeasurable, but here's the clincher, and I think this is where Solomon finds his soul anchored that love is unconditional. It doesn't have a prerequisite for you to engage its soul transformative power. It just does what it does. 
It's an emotion that loves you no matter who you are, where you are, what you are, how you are. It doesn't require that you do anything to receive other than opening up your heart to receive. But you don't have to clean up, to get up, to get it. It'll find you where you are. It's not only unconditional, but it's unstoppable. Here's what I mean by that. No matter how you try, love will be there. You can't stop its flow. Now, you can reject it, but it's always there. And it's not only unstoppable, but it's unending. You can't find a point to which you will argue love will get to this point and that's its conclusion. That's impossible. Because I believe what Solomon saw in the Shulamite woman was all that his father tried to teach him in reference to the God of Israel. And that is that God is unexplainable. His goodness is so extensive and his love is so unbelievable that when you think about how good God is in loving us, I really can't explain it. It's not just unexplainable, but it's unmeasurable because when you think about how far, how much length God has gone to express his love on a cross called Calvary, you can't measure that. No matter how much I try to give, it will never match the love that God gives. It's not only unexplainable, unmeasurable, but it's unconditional. And that's a shouting point for me because thank God he didn't require for us to do anything to receive his love in terms of it coming to us. All you really got to do is just simply open up your heart. In fact, even when you reject God, he still loves us. He doesn't have any conditions. For John says he so loved the world that he gave. And that whosoever believes in him won't perish but experience what's called everlasting life. But it's unstoppable. Even when I stop giving, even when I stop worshiping, even when I stop praying, even when I stop celebrating, God doesn't stop loving me. He keeps on loving and keeps on loving. And if that's not enough, God's love is unending. No matter where I go, his love will follow me wherever I go. For it's both Jesus and Paul that tells us that when we talk about a good structure, we get the same understanding and throughout the Song of Solomon, we talk about a good structure. A good structure is deemed good because of its foundation. Jesus made plain to us that a rock foundation enables the structure to survive the winds and the rains of life. Well, remember in Matthew 7, he says, if you build your house on a rock, it can sustain whatever the adversity is. But if you build it on sand, when that adversity arrives, it will erode and the rains will wash away whatever structure is standing on the ground. 
But if that wasn't enough, when I read in 1 Corinthians 3 and 11, Paul says something even more fascinating. Paul says we have a already prefabricated foundation. I thought that was crazy, Nolan, when I read that. Prefabricated. And if you look closely at 1 Corinthians 3.11, you can see what Paul meant. He said we had a foundation already laid. It's already there. He says it's Christ who is the pre-laid foundation. We talk about particulars that friendships and relationships must possess to satisfy what we call authenticity. So we're talking about characteristics like trust, like honesty, like mutuality, like intentional communication, and love unconditional. But the same holds true for marriage. However the premise, however the premise or the promise, it's more particular to the foundation of what we call love in the text. It's better expressed when we experience it from God in Christ because the love that God gives fit every single characteristic I previously mentioned. That's what I think Solomon heard both in his ear and in his vision as he witnessed the life of this Shulamite woman. That's the very experience that Solomon tells us about in this closing chapter. And I find it fascinating that it is not at the beginning, but at the end, almost reflective of what John does in his gospel. John doesn't tell us why he writes what he writes until he gets to chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, and tells us the reason why he listed in the previous 20 chapters all that he wrote about Jesus. He tells us in that verse, he says, I wrote this and I gave you many signs that Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, but they're not in this book. They're not here, however he says, the ones that are given, they are given that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing, you may have life in his name. Could it be that when Solomon met this woman, he finally found out what love genuinely was? His father tried to tell him what, what love was through the work that God had given and the expression that God had given to him as king of Israel, but yet he couldn't grasp it. And this is what God does. When we can't grasp it in the spiritual realm, he manifests it in the physical realm. That's all the Old Testament is. It's an expression of how much I love you, how much I care for you, but we just couldn't quite grasp it. And then God says, i tell you what I'm going to do. I might as well leave glory and come into humanity and let them see love really walking among them. And that's where John says, I had to wait until the end because it was too good. If I told you up front, you may not have quite understood nor rejoiced. But if I took you through all of the episodes to which you can see God loving humanity, then you will understand why I waited until the end. And that's the reason why I think that he waited until the end to tell us what we have in this eighth chapter. The theme that Solomon says 
is that love thing that helps us recognize that love is perpetuating, love is universal, love is flexible, and love is soul transformative. And we ought to be shouting that love is perpetuating, which means that when it comes to me, it should not stop here, but it needs to go to somebody else. We should be glad that it's not only perpetuating, but that love also is universal because thank goodness it's not found in one space of geography, but all over the world. Isn't it amazing? Different languages, different cultures, yet love can be defined and experienced through differences. Not only is universal in nature, but thank goodness love is flexible. Flexible in the sense that it does not have an expectation that I have to be one way to be loved by its goodness, but I can be the most miserable of all human beings, and yet love will reach me where I am. And in its flexibility, being able to be flexible where I am, that's what makes it so transformative. It's, it's a, almost a trite uh, and, and almost a statement perhaps uh, that may not should be made in sacred context, but yet it holds such genuine truth if you interpret what love genuine is. Love can love the hell out of you. That's how deep it can be. Whatever you are and whoever you are, no matter how evil you are, if you crack the door of your heart, love can love whatever is residing that keeps you from loving in return. That's how powerful love can be. And it's so life-altering that I've given you in the bulletin what I've come to know in the text the various kinds of different revealing expressions that love does in the context of this eight chapter. Look at verse one and two, it makes clear first of all that in the loving that this Shulamite woman received, it's so overwhelming and so powerful that she wants to declare her love publicly for her husband. Now you have to understand that in Near East culture, it would be unkosher for husband and wife to express any kind of love endurement in public, but it's permissible for family members to do so in public. See, look at verse one, where it says, oh, I wish you were my brother who nursed at my mother's breast, then I could kiss you, and no matter who was watching, no one would criticize me. She makes clear that if we were in a space where we were relatives, it would be good, but the love that we have, I want to express it so much that I want to make it public. Now, there are still some cultures where you can't be that expressive in terms of how you love another person, but in the Western culture where we are, it's all right to hold hands in public. It's all right to kiss your spouse in public. It's all right to hold your spouse in public. What does that mean? That tells the whole world, here's my billboard. This person means that much to me that I publicly want my love known 
by her in front of everybody. I don't want, when love is so good to me, I certainly don't want to hide it and keep it to myself. I want everybody to know that I am loved. So in verse 1 and 2, she says that I wish I could do that because it's so good. I would even take you back to my child home. Look at verse 2. Where my childhood home is, where I was taught. And I think she's telling us there, I would take you back so I could there reminisce how I was taught what love looks like. It's an awareness to us that we should remember when we have children that we need to teach them what love is and what it looks like so that they don't have to learn it in another context that will be dishonest and that will be exploitive and that will take advantage in many ways and that will be selfish and love is not selfish, says 1 Corinthians 13. So she contends that I want to I let everyone know publicly that I love you, but then look at verse 3 and 4. But she also says, I not only want everybody publicly that I love you, but I also want to reserve some of, my, some of my love for you privately. Because there's some stuff about my love that I want to give to you that I don't want nobody else to see. It's for your eyes only. So that when we become so endeared and so engulfed in that person, we have to remind ourselves, not here, baby, but, but there's a space. And there's a place. See, that's what makes longevity. That's what brings life. And that's what brings strength and endurance to marriage. It's keeping it exciting. If you allow it to become redundant, it becomes stale. And over time, nothing rocks your boat. Nothing lights your fire. Nothing that the other person, because this is aching on, they can predict what you're going to do and what you're going to say. Man, y'all so quiet on that. I got it. I, I know why. I, I, I know why. I know, I know why. Look at verse 3. Your left arm would be under my head and your right arm would embrace me. And then she says something incredible. She says, promise me, O women of Jerusalem, not to awaken love until the time is right. If you go back to chapter 2 and verse 6 and 7 and chapter 3, verse 5, the same statement is made, which to me is an insert to remind us love has timing sometimes in terms of expression. You should time how you're going to privately love one another. Planning. Yet spontaneous from time to time. Let me see if I can get through the cobwebs. <laughs> Spontaneous. Blow her mind. Blow his mind. Ooh, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> That's what she's saying in the text. She's telling us in the text that privately, this is what I'm expecting. And she says... Wake up, love, only when the timing is right. Now, now, now here's what she's going to tell us. Let's, let's make this a, a modern vernacular expression. So I can't show up at your job and wanting to be intimate with you at the job. That's called stupidity. But I can give you a phone call on your job 
and let you know what's going to happen when you get home from the job. There it is right there. That's why she says, your one hand will be under my head. Look at the text. And your other arm will embrace me. Because she's saying to the ladies all around, let me give y'all a tip. She says, don't wake love up until the timing is right. In other words, don't make this just a habit because you think it's a mere responsibility. That's not love. But engage because I want to engage. Then look what she says. Love is personal, it's protective, it's possessive, and it's powerful. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 in the text, she says, Place me like a seal over your heart, personal. Translation though, the seal would have been the signet ring of Solomon that whenever he would have written a document, that seal on that document would have meant that it's authentic, it's from him. You and I, in modern context, the signet ring, the seal, is our wedding ring. It's what we place on the hand to publicly declare that we have a seal around that person's heart. And you don't give anybody a ring unless it's going to be personal. If you do that and it's not personal, that's called being a F-O-O-L, fool. Because that's, have you, have you noticed? That's an unbreakable presence. There's not a break in there at all. It's a suggestion when I put this, and no one breaks the king's seal except the authorized individual. No one should break the seal because this is the seal I placed on her heart. It's not just personal, but look at the text. Look at verse 6. Place the seal over my heart like a seal on your arm. It's protective. Protect me like you protect yourself. And Paul says, husbands love your wives like you love yourself. It's protective. But it's not just protective, it's possessive. Look at what he says. For love is as strong as death. And you and I know that all of us have a date with death at some point in time. Death will possess us at some point and transition that kind of strength. It possesses where I don't want to let go. Okay, let me make it plain. When someone dies that we love so dearly, why is it so hard for us to let go? Because the love with that person has possessed us. That's not, a good, that's not a bad thing, nor is it a good thing in the sense that you're trying to find a good and a bad. It's neither. It's the action of what love does. It possesses us. But it also is powerful. Look what she said in verse 6. Not only is love in the sense that it's strong as death, it's powerful. But look at the last line. But love flashes like 
fire the brightest kind of flame. Now, I'll run quicker from fire than I will water. It's only because I think I can outrun water. But I ain't too sure about fire if it moves fast enough. But water moves faster. But fire can do some incredible things if it attaches to flammable context. And what does love do when it's in the right context that's burnable? It'll burn it up. It'll burn up who we are, not in a bad way, but in an exciting, glorious way. That's what Solomon is experiencing in this woman. But look what verse 7 says. Love is persevering and priceless. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can rivers drown it. We can use waters and rivers as metaphors, as trouble, as challenges. They can't quench it, nor can they drown it. That means they can't put the fire out. But I want to contend that maybe the analogy is borrowed from Elijah at Mount Carmel. Because Elijah lets the prophets of Baal go first to see exactly whose God is God. And when the prophets of Baal call out for their God to come down, it doesn't show up. But Elijah tells them to build up the altar and put all, in fact, baptize it seven times. And what does God does? God shows up in a fire that licks up the water to let them know that when we talk about the God who is the God Almighty, here's his power demonstrated. And Solomon is trying to tell us love is in the same manner. When it comes down, it can lick up the river and it can lick up any kind of water. Can't quench it. Because it is persevering and it's priceless. See what he says in verse 7, the last line? If a man tried to buy love with all his wealth, his offer would be utterly scorned. You cannot buy love. You can buy some time in terms of being with someone, but you can't buy love. I correct that. You can buy a watch, but you can't buy time. If you notice that, you can buy a watch, but you can't buy time. You can buy sex, but you can't buy love. That's what she has made plain to Solomon. This is not for sale, she says. This is for someone who genuinely loves me. That's why in verse 8 and 9 she says, love is pure. See what she says? Look at verse 8. It is used by way of an analogy of brothers who protect the purity of their sister. Look what it says. We have a little sister too young to have breasts. What will we do for our sister if someone asks to marry her? Because in ancient Near East, as well as even now, some cultures prearrange marriage for a child early in their life. But they are arguing she's not mature enough yet to even be married. We must protect her. Her purity is what we must protect. Look at the next line. 
if she is like a virgin, like a wall, we will protect her with a silver tower. But if she is promiscuous, like a swinging door, we will block her door with a cedar bar. In other words, if my sister happens to be a little bit more, uh, how should we say, loose, then as her brother and protector, it becomes my responsibility to make sure we cut that off. Because her posture should be one of purity so that when she gives, she gives out of love and not out of somebody trying to purchase who she is. Why do I think that statement is there? Because when you go back to chapter one, remember, she has a challenge of her own self-identity. And now, being in this relationship where she has come to realize that she is somebody, now her dignity has arisen to another level and she now recognizes, I just don't give myself to anybody. You've got to earn who I am and you earn this by loving me and marrying me. There it is right there in the text. She's arguing for purity and that purity in verse 10 will bring her peace. See in verse 10, she says, I'm a virgin like a wall. Now my breasts are like towers. When my lover looks at me, he is delighted with what he sees. Which meant to me, you, you got to understand how to read behind the sentences in this poetry. In other words, Solomon got nothing until Solomon married me. Boy, I know y'all trying to figure that one out, H. I don't know why you're trying to figure it out because it's quite simple. No free milk here. Because if you understand the male anatomy and the male psyche, he will get what you will give him. He'll take it. But when you are priceless and when you have a dignity that requires one to embrace who you are, that expectation will be that you will meet me on the terms to which I can give you by way of endearment who I am. That's not to make anyone feel guilty. That's just simply the, the perspective of the text. It just raises our expectation, that's all. Because once again, I'll go back to the whole love theme. Thank goodness that when we have made mistakes, love is so endless and so unstoppable and unconditional, it looks beyond the failure and see the need of who we are. Love is privileged. That's where I'm trying to get you to. Verse 11 and 12. Solomon has a vineyard in which he leases out the tenants and each of them pay him 2,000 pieces of silver for harvesting the fruit, but my vineyard is mine to give. Now remember, vineyard in the text often refers to her body and that's what I meant by she now makes a point that no one, I don't care who Solomon is, gets me unless I want to give him me. There it is. Look what it says. But my vineyard is mine to give and Solomon need not pay a single penny, let alone thousand pieces of silver. Because I'm not for sale. 
See, that's a passage for young women to remember how precious you are and what you have in terms of your virginity is what you have in terms of your pricelessness. Guard it. Protect it. And I don't care how raging your hormones are, let him know, uh-uh, I'm not giving you who I am until you marry me because this is sacred. There it is right there in the text. That's the, that's the spirit that they're trying to advocate. And I know that's unconventional in our modern vernacular, in our modern minds. You know, we have the idea you need to try it before you buy it. And then if I tried and I didn't like it, eh, get down and give me another one. Tried that and I didn't like that. Ah, give me another one. We, we, we started dehumanizing and we start mistreating and we start devaluing and we reduce people from human beings to property. That's what slavery did. And whether we know it or not, we're replaying the whole methodologies all over again the whole pathologies all over again she's arguing that I'm privileged and if I'm privileged I'm particular I give my gift to someone special and I'm particular look at verse 13 and 14 now here here is not just her voice but I argue this is Solomon's voice closing out the poem I'm going to contend that Solomon is simply saying it's time for me to let everybody know this is the reason why I will make do of this woman however I desire and I'm doing so because she means that much to me. Look, look what he says. Look what he says. He says, every, I'm going to paraphrase 13, everybody who's in your space get to hear your voice. And because it's that powerful, let me hear your voice. There it is right there. Look what he says in 13. My darling, lingering in the garden, your companions are fortunate to hear your voice. Let me hear it too. In other words, you mean that much to me and what you say is so life transformative. I want to hear you all the time. Look at verse 14. Come, let us leave this place. Let us fly off into the sunset. Let us enjoy life like life was meant to live. Because Solomon reminds us of a single principle. Loneliness is a dangerous place to be. Do you not know that people who are lonely have a higher rate of heart attacks than people who are not? Do you not know that there's been research to prove that cancer patients who are lonely fare less than cancer patients who are married, it's because we were designed to be with someone, to be engaged with someone who loves us and cares about us and we can spiritually and physically witness and experience what love is. And one of our challenges in a modern society is we forget Genesis, I mean Exodus 20, Exodus 20. Remember when God said, I am the Lord your God, I am a jealous God. Don't have any other gods before me, don't love anyone else. Love is just that because love is God. 
I don't want no other. I don't want no other. No other to take the place of me. Because no one else can love you like I do, says God. And when you are involved in the marital relationship, what God is doing is showing you how genuine and loving that love can be through the expressions of another person. And that's the reason why Adam says in Genesis 2, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Because when I join myself to someone, I'm weaving our lives together. We are one. And I can't explain it. Tortillian, some argue, give, give us the definition, some say Augustine, but what it means to have Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Trinity is a kind of confusing, mysterious thing to try to explain. It's not three separate gods. It's one God who expresses himself through three different kinds of expressions. So God, in his expressive of creator, demonstrates for us the joy of what he did in terms of creating man from the dust of the earth, but the joy is in the image of God. In John 1, God expresses himself to show how much he loves man through the image of creating his son like man, but yet not man in the sense of his sinfulness. And here it is. And God, through his son, and his son ascending back to glory, shows us how much he loves us for never leaving us nor forsaking us by living in us through the presence of his Holy Spirit. Love is just like that. It's mysterious, but yet it's embracing. And I need God because God is my creator. I need the son because he's my redeemer. And I need the spirit because he's the indwelling presence of all that God is. And each of them is the expression of God in his fullness. That's why Solomon found his whole in her in terms of his wholeness because he saw all that he needed in terms of human love in that one person. And all I've tried to get us to see in these eight chapters for this poem is simply that love in 1 Corinthians 13 suffereth long, but it's genuine. It can do some great things in life. One reason why we struggle so much in our lives with individuals is because we don't understand the meaning of love. And as a humanity, we struggle with understanding the value of each other because we miss the essence of what God declares as love. Let me close by reading this glorious passage from 1 Corinthians 13. Just a few lines. Love is patient. Love is kind. And when Paul says love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude, Paul means that love uh, doesn't invade or love is not selfish to the point where it's not willing to be shared. But then Paul says something interesting. He says love is not irritable 
and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out, and love never gives up. Love never loses faith, but love is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. That's it, I'm done. I'm done. And all I came to tell